0: Beneath the day-to-day bustle of normal operation, there is a spirit of adventure that tugs at the heart of helicopter flight. Our guest today is Jessica Maris, a pilot and rock climber from Colorado Springs. In 2014, she became the first woman in history to rope solo climb El Capitan in a single push, breaking the previous female record by four days. Jessica experienced her first brush with helicopters when she was air rescued after an accident climbing a rock tower in Red Rocks, Nevada an event that would plant the seeds for a new chapter in her life. Now in a second career as a helicopter pilot, Jessica hopes to one day fly for short-haul rescue programs and give back to the climbing community that shaped her. We'll speak with Jessica about her transition to aviation from guiding adventure sports, the rescue mission that opened her eyes to helicopter flight, her experience flying glacier tours in Alaska, and the importance of building relationships in aviation. This is Push to Talk with Bruce Webb, Episode 7, Reaching Out.
1: We'd like to welcome Jessica Maris to the show. Jessica and I met each other probably now three years ago at Airbus. Jessica was there, I think it was pre-pandemic. It must have been pre-pandemic, yes. So, welcome to the show, Jessica. You're a uh, very accomplished young aviator. So, tell us about your career. Tell us about Jessica Maris.
2: Well, I was looking for another career. It's my second career. What was your first career? I was a mountain guide and rock climber for 16 years. And I was looking for another career that would ideally keep me in the mountains, was physically much easier, but still mentally engaging. And I had a bunch of options. I kept a running list. I knew that I would eventually leave guiding. And helicopters went on that list circa 2010, although I didn't really start researching the industry until probably 2015 or 2016. And at that point, after looking at my list of options, Helicopter Pilot rose pretty quickly to the top. It fit all of those criteria and seemed very exciting and something that you would always be a student in aviation, which is one thing I really value about it. And it turns out it was a great fit.
1: To go back to your rock climbing career, which if you want to have a career that's exciting, Mm -hmm. certainly being a helicopter pilot is an exciting career. (laughs) But being a rock climber, and when I hear rock climbing, my mind instantly goes to the movie Free Solo.
2: Yep, that's Alex Honnold.
1: Have you ever met him by chance? I have met him. If you've not watched the movie Free Solo, watch that movie. I found it fascinating. I know that's That's probably the outside extreme of mountain climbing. I mean, there aren't many people doing that.
2: No, he's an anomaly.
1: (laughs) He is an anomaly. So you did mountain climbing, but with ropes and you were a guide and you took people on excursions. Is that?
2: Yeah, essentially. So I started guiding all sorts of adventure sports from surfing to mountain biking to backpacking to mountaineering with an ice axe and crampons. And I really whittled it down over time to multi-pitch rock climbing, which is my specialty for all those years. Multi-pitch means you're going several hundred feet off the ground with ropes. And El Capitan, what Alex Honnold accomplished without ropes, is the feather in the cap monumental feature. It's such a huge goal for a lot of climbers. And being an anomaly, he was able to do that without
1: ropes, right. which is
2: mind-blowing too. Yes. I would
1: say insane, <laughs> but mind-blowing is uh, probably yeah. a, a, a kinder characterization.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, groundbreaking achievement for Unbelievable.
1: sure. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm.
2: But my specialty was with ropes mm-hmm. and with clients that looked like engaging with them in a high-risk environment, sounds familiar. Like helicopters. Exactly. Right. And really coaching them. I liked to teach people and I like to facilitate a program or an experience for them that allowed them to grow personally, not only as rock climbers with skills, technical skills and otherwise, but also grow them as people. You can learn Just a lot like about aviation. yourself Yep, through this process of risk. And that risk is is paramount. It's a sure. necessary part of the process. And I absolutely loved spending
1: time with people in that environment. So I can see why becoming an aviator is a logical Progression. I guess I will say progression from one career to the other. Uh, because, yeah, managing risk is still something that is paramount in our business. Mm-hmm.
2: It absolutely is. And that was important for me to have an easy transition. I knew that the skills would translate and also, my end goal is to fly for short-haul rescue programs, be able to give back to that climbing community right. in places like Yosemite or Grand Teton National Park or places that even helicopters can't land where they need that kind of human external cargo yes. operation to be able to help people. Yes. So, that was a huge part of
1: And of you're moving process. towards that quite rapidly. Doing my best. <laughs> I, I, it's I challenging believe, and competitive. Yeah, when we first met, I think you were... You know, maybe at your second job or so mm-hmm. with mm-hmm, uh, helicopters, but have progressed rapidly. So, when you learned to fly helicopters, where did you learn, and what did you fly? What What was your experience like?
2: I'm from Colorado. I started at a school called Colorado HeliOps in the well. Denver metro mm-hmm. area. I did private instrument at that school. I did some of my commercial PIC during my instrument training at a small Part sixty one school in Indiana. And then I finished my commercial rating and I in Albuquerque, New Mexico, vertical awesome. limit aviation. So I went to three different schools and that diversity and experience added a lot to sure. my path. And I feel like that was valuable experience and to learn from so many different people in so many different environments. And I am thankful for that. Yes,
1: that is very important. When we look at anyone in aviation to have an eclectic background, whether it's through training or through experience, is important. Mm -hmm. So, what aircraft were you flying primarily, or was there- I was in Robinson's.
2: Okay. Mm -hmm. 22 and
1: 44. The 22, fantastic little helicopter. The 44 is kind of usurped it, I believe, as a training aircraft. I mean, a lot of people are using the 44s. Tell me what you perceive to be the difference between the two. So, if you look at training in the 22 versus the 44, what were the benefits of the 44?
2: I really enjoyed the 44. It's become, although I haven't flown that many helicopters yet- It's really reigns supreme in so many ways for being accessible, for being relatively easy to maintain, relatively easy to learn when it comes to training aircraft, the 22 would be a little harder and it is available to so many more people, a broader range of people because of the seat weight limit and its performance capabilities. And it's it's safety. I think it's a safer aircraft in so many ways. There's certainly a greater margin.
1: Yeah. When you're flying a 44, you're not at gross mass all the time. Yeah. So me in a 22, mm-hmm. you and I in a 22 with a full bag of fuel, Yeah. we're at gross mass. We wouldn't be in a 44, <laughs> of course. Exactly. So you did your instrument training in a 44 as yeah, well? I did. Okay, yep. great. In,
2: yeah, instrument. My 44 transition happened right after private and then after the PIC sign-off, started right into instrument training.
1: So how old were you when you began your second career?
2: I started at 36. I told you 37 earlier, but it was 36. It was 2018. And I wanted to finish school as quickly as possible, knowing that I didn't have
1: a whole lot of time. When a 36-year-old woman says that to some, well, you're not 36 anymore, but yeah, you had plenty of time.
2: I I did have plenty of time and knowing what I wanted to do, which is highly competitive with a, a challenging path ahead of me, I knew that efficiency was important. So even though I didn't feel like I was too late by any means, it's never too late to start flight training. It's never too late to be a pilot. I knew that what I wanted to do would take dedication, efficiency, and a healthy dose of motivation. And I got after it. I wanted to finish in about a year, ended up being about a year and a half and Which jumped is right into the industry. That
1: still is very fast.
2: Off the street, no aviation
1: background. No friends, no family, you know, no no mentors. Zero. You just walked up to somebody and said, teach me to fly. Mm-hmm. Good for you.
2: <laughs> yeah. Good for
1: you. So you're proof positive that it can be done.
2: It can be done. And it really is never too late. I think I could have started five years later, 10 years later, and been fine.
1: So now you were flying tours in Alaska mm-hmm. over the summer this or for the summer. season. Mm-hmm. And was that your first opportunity to fly tours?
2: It was not. I started flying tours really early, unusually early, I would say. Most people do flight instruction for a little bit, transition to tours maybe at 500 hours or 1,000 hours. And I started flying tours at 300 hours as a result of starting a business with, at the time, my co-business partner, Matt. And that operation really helped us both move into a new phase in our career We learned a ton of valuable lessons during that time, not only about the flying, but about running a business and what that can look like during the pandemic. And it was successful. And I've since left that company, but he's running it successfully, usually remotely managing pilots and everything there is to manage about a business from far away. And that experience was paramount in facilitating the experience and hours that I needed to move quickly. So tours about 300 hours or so. And then I did a mixture of things. I was essentially running my own company as an independent contractor. So I'd provide Part 61 flight instruction with aircraft rented from private owners all over the country. So I could train someone who called from wherever and I could facilitate and coordinate their flight training in a variety of different aircraft. And some tours, including a tour position in Colorado in summer of 2021, and that was in the R66. So okay. that was the, my first real turbine job. I did a full turbine transition. And then- And you did that
1: at Robinson? That was- I didn't
2: with the, with the operator. With the operator. Okay. Yeah, with the operator who trained me on the 66. And I flew that contract for a full summer season and then a little bit off and on throughout the winter until heading to Alaska in April of 2022, where I flew the AS350.
1: So the 66, I've not flown a 66. I've only seen a few. What was your experience in that transition?
2: Being relatively new and especially new to turbine helicopters, I was at about 500 hours. And what an incredible opportunity to be able to fly turbine at that experience level, which is uncommon. You'll hear that word a lot with my my path. And I felt like it was just the right amount of challenge. The Robinson was familiar And I was grateful for that. I wasn't learning an entirely different control input Mm -hmm. configuration, an entirely different panel. What was different was the engine and the power capabilities. And the man that trained me had an incredible knowledge of this engine. And he's moving towards AMP or has about that knowledge. So I was able to work under and with him through a lot of the maintenance side of this aircraft as well. It was in a pretty remote area. And so a lot of that a lot of parts of that maintenance side I was also exposed mm-hmm. to, and that was lovely. So learning that engine was, was critical, and I was fortunate to have that knowledge base and that mentorship. And also flying in the mountains was something that was different. I didn't have a ton of experience at that point outside of the flight training environment as a student. So now I was in command of this much more complicated, much more expensive aircraft with passengers in a highly complex environment with the additional risks that come with mountain flying. So he was a fabulous instructor and allowed me to explore the limitations of that aircraft within a bubble of risk management and safety and all the things that you would want to be in place. And allowed me to learn the engine, learn its limitations, and the landing site was so complicated, surrounded by wires at high altitude. I was doing a confined area with wires and a slope landing every time I landed that aircraft. That'll make you sharp. Yeah, that challenged me. And he saw in me that potential and knew that I was capable, more than I knew that I was capable, and gave me just the right information at just the right time to make sure that I was set up well to handle the aircraft safely.
1: Sounds like a fantastic mentor and leader. Absolutely. Because that is what leadership and mentorship is, mm-hmm. is yeah, identifying talent, helping people in the ways that they need help. It's fantastic you had that experience.
2: It really was. And it was a result of networking Mm -hmm. with this company and with this operator for eight years. I volunteered my time to learn how to run a tour company. I did ground crew for him. Then I was hired on as ground crew for him while I was in school. We'd had this partnership forever. It completely exemplifies how important networking is and how important clear communication, integrity, being with people Contribute to your success in this industry. Absolutely. It's all about people.
1: All you have is your reputation. Yep. So you must guard it, protect it, you know, hopefully expand it, you mm-hmm. know, improve it at all times. But yeah, that's all we really have. And mm-hmm. so that's why it's so important to have impeccable integrity and good communication skills. You know, you, you said something that piqued my interest. So you said your story oftentimes will hear the word unusual. I understand why you say that, and you're perhaps 100% accurate. The reason it's unusual is because too many people are afraid to test it. It goes untested. You have succeeded because you had a goal. You did everything you could to learn all that you could from every opportunity afforded you. When you say you were, you know, you worked as a as a ground operations person. You you helped maintain aircraft. You done all that. All of that is what makes you not only a more interesting person, but a more valuable. person pilot, leader one day. When you said that the gentleman helped you and, you know, was able to know what you needed when you needed it and feed it to you, you have those skills too, and you'll be able to help others if you're not already helping others. I know that you're doing work with HAI, Helicopter Association International. You do work with VAST, the Vertical Aviation Safety Team, the Rotorcraft Collective, U.S.H.S.T. U.S. Helicopter Safety Team. There. Absolutely gets wrapped in there as well, in my mind, with the VAST, but that is different. And so, certainly, you're willing to give back as well.
2: I think if we don't give back, then people who are questioning whether or not aviation is right for them, whether or not they can, what are their setbacks, if we don't share our own story and give back in that way, then it prohibits people from having anything aviation in particular helicopters be accessible to them so part of my motivation is to share the story get it out there to inspire others to check it out or start questioning their own limitations and then secondly to help us stop crashing
1: helicopters yeah we um, unfortunately you know our accident record is not what we desire and nothing changes overnight it takes a while to turn the turn the ship so to speak but i do think we're making a difference and i think people like you are a good advocate for safety i'm on the uh, i'm 58 years old so i think sometimes i'm seen as the old guy and you know i don't want to say ignored but people are more likely to listen to people they consider to be their peers and i think that's what's fantastic about you you're a young person who's now in this business but who's also advocating for safety and doing it a very proactive way. That's one of the reasons I wanted you on the show. Your story will resonate with a, with many people. Yeah, we need that. We need to make safety something that is not word spoken, but not followed. Young people like you are going to help spread that word. Thank you for doing that. As you sit here today and you think of all the skills that you have, whether it's communication, whether it's a formal education, whether it is your, you know, experience doing mountain climbing. I mean, what sets you apart? What makes you exceptional? Not what makes your story unusual, but what makes you exceptional?
2: Two things come to mind. One is my background with mountain guiding, that I could even extend it a little further before I was a mountain guide. I was a lifeguard and I was I've been medically trained for years. I have that kind of wiring. To handle emergencies, to stay calm. I'm very logical, very analytical, very practical. That capability and especially the risk management component and the people component have helped me so much in aviation. And those skills have magically translated in, mo- in ways that I couldn't, some I predicted. And then there are others that I, I couldn't have predicted at all. That intuition that you build being in dynamic, changing situations with people who are scared or with dealing with emergencies and making high pressure decisions, all those things added up and I didn't even get it. I didn't understand how important they were until I was placed in a completely different environment like a helicopter cockpit with this background of skills and able to make decisions and to have the kind of calm confidence that came from that background but I didn't really understand how it would translate until I was until I was in it and in particular the people piece learning how to how to be with people how to communicate right. how to relate how to be compassionate and empathetic how to keep a calm voice and communicate in a way that can modify the energy or the the feeling around a particular space unbelievably different.
1: It's situational awareness. I mean, Mm -hmm. the ability to remain calm in a high-pressure situation is certainly an attribute that all pilots desire to have. Some have, I suppose. Some have more than others. Mm -hmm. It's great if it's an innate ability. Some Mm -hmm. people have that. They're born with some of that. But for most of us, right, we learn that. Mm -hmm. I'm certain you had some innate characteristics before you ever became a lifeguard, before you ever were a mountain climber. But those experiences exacerbated that innate ability. You know, in the medical field, they would say it potentiates, right? Mm -hmm. One thing that happens that increases the effect of another is potentiation. So it's fantastic that you landed in aviation, specifically helicopters, because the skills that you described are exactly what you're going to need to do successfully what you currently do. Mm -hmm. And specifically, if you're going to start doing rescue work, do you have specific operators or operations within this country Or would you desire to go outside the country to other parts of the world to do this?
2: I would consider both. My target is human external cargo operations, whether that's a winch or a short haul operation. That's the kind of rescue work that I want to do. And in Europe, it's prevalent. They have a completely different system over there. It's widely recognized, widely successful. That's attractive to me. And there are operations here that are widely recognized, highly successful, just a slightly different way of going about things. So... Open to either. I'd say the Grand Teton National Park program has been one of my targets. When I was a mountain guide, I lived at that heli base for seven years and watched that helicopter come and go every day doing rescues. I know the rangers. I'm well connected to that community and it's my pie in the sky golden ticket job. Right. The reality of that job, I'm not sure if that's going to be the best fit for me until I dig in a little bit deeper and know more about what those operations look right. like. But in my mind, that's the kind of sure. work that I would really like are to you, do.
1: Do you still maintain contact with them? I do. hmm Yeah. Awesome. What kind of aircraft do they fly? 350 B-3. Do they? Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that. I Absolutely. mean, I honestly didn't. To, yeah. To me, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are many great helicopters in the world, but mm-hmm. the B-3 is an awesome machine. It is, and that's my target. So, when you were in Alaska flying tours over the summer, this past season, you were flying- The B-2. B2s. Yeah, I think the B3, and if, again, someone on the show will correct me, but the original B3s anyway had 16% more power than the B2. Again, why I can remember that fact, <laughs> I don't know. But that had the 2B engine. So the B2 had the Ariel 1D1, and then the B3, the original ones had the 2B, mm-hmm. and then went to 2B1, and then blah, 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 blah. So an evolution. So the B3 is certainly the, H13, the H125, the mm-hmm. H as we would call it today, is certainly a monster and it was designed to do that kind of work. High altitude workhorse. Right. It would appear likely to me that within your life, and probably more soon than later, you'll have the opportunity to do that. What was your timeline? When do you, when do you think it's possible you could make a transition into something like that?
2: I think four-ish years is realistic. Okay. Yeah. I'm at the place now where I'm looking for external load training mm-hmm. and experience, and I will need a couple years of that kind of experience before, you know, with the air conditioners or logs or water or whatever before they let me carry a human on the end of that line. So I think that's realistic. couple of years working with external load and and more time in the A-star. And diversify with other aircraft as well during that time. I think that's important in, in anyone's career. And then move towards the rescue work in in four to five years. Another thing come came to mind too about where I hope to work. I'm attracted to places that I have local knowledge the Tetons being a guide there for years I know the canyons I know the routes I know where people are I know where they get stuck you know somebody is another one I've spent extensive time climbing there and I know the environment so that came to mind as an afterthought of places that I dream of working because I those places are important to me and they speak to my heart and to be able to give back getting back to that concept that's those are both places that are that really speak to me Red Rocks, Nevada is another one. Yeah, I spent months and months and months of my life rock climbing there. And uh, and I was actually rescued there. <laughs> that was my first helicopter ride.
1: You're kidding. Not kidding.
2: God, tell us about that. As a rescue, it was in 2010. I was climbing with a, a climbing partner of mine, and we were about 600 feet up on a multi-pitch climb, a tower, and having a nice day out. There were some people ahead of us who were moving a little slower, and we asked them if we could pass.
1: Play through. They said,
2: yeah, exactly. Play through. <laughs> And they said, no problem. So my partner started to go up and went a little bit to the side of where these people were climbing and therefore onto rock that wasn't as well traveled. And while he was climbing, he broke off a hold and took about a 50 foot fall. And the rock was just slightly less than vertical. And when rock is at that angle, you tend to tumble more than you fall. fall. So you're going to land, you know, be with your rope. Of course, you're going to come onto come to rest on the rope and on the equipment. That's why the equipment is there. And he tumbled. So I thought he broke his back and I didn't have a phone, but the people climbing around us did. They called the helicopter. Meanwhile, I'm doing the medical assessment and making a plan for how we're going to get ourselves down. I had the equipment I needed. I had the skills to be able to get us from where we were to the ground, assuming that he was somewhat mobile, didn't need a stretcher. And I was worried about a back injury. I was worried about head trauma. I was worried about all those things. So it was this intense, intense moment. The helicopter was there. I mean, it felt like minutes. I think it was about a half an hour, which is still pretty good for mm-hmm. being in a relatively remote environment. They were there quick, managed to drop off a rescuer in a place that we could see across the canyon to this rescuer. It was at the same altitude, same elevation as we were, but the helicopter needed to leave so that we could communicate with this person. And I was able to get the word across that we didn't need some huge high-angle rescue. Like, I could get us to the ground, meet us at the ground. Helicopter comes back, picks him up on a, mind you, like a pinnacle on the side of a wall somewhere. It's a 500, modified 500. Leaves again. I get us to the ground. It probably took 45 minutes or something.
1: And he's awake alert.
2: He's awake and alert. Yep. And I didn't trust him to do anything by himself. I mean, he could move his hands and he could unclip and clip equipment and that kind of thing. But I didn't really trust him 100%. It was one of those trust but verify situations. We're familiar with that in aviation. Same thing. Like, okay, yeah, you can clip this here and then I would verify that it's done properly. Got us to the ground. Helicopter comes back. Rescuers are there waiting for us on the ground. Put him in a litter. Helicopter comes back. And I'm not kidding. This pilot one skidded on this slopey rock surface in the middle of a tight, tight canyon. There's no place to actually land. He one skidded it as one rescuer loaded up my climbing partner and the doors were off in the back. So if you can picture the back of a 500, the whole back was stripped. It was a metal box with a bar. And it's not very big. Doors are off. It's not very big. (laughs) And to that effect, his head and feet were sticking out the doors. So he's laying on his back in this litter, looking up at the spinning rotor system clipped into a bar, open doors with the one rescuer, and they take off. And I look at our pile of gear, our backpacks and everything we had. Wow, it's going to be a long hike out. And sure enough, helicopter comes right back, picks up the other rescuer, me and all of our stuff, and we fly towards the waiting ambulance. And even though the gravity of that situation was huge and I was scared for my partner, I didn't know what the outcome of that medical situation is going to look like, It was a very intense time. I had the biggest smile on my face on that helicopter ride, (laughs) leaving the canyon. I thought, oh, there's something to this. And that's when I put it on the list. And I thought I'd be the rescuer at the time. I didn't think pilot. I thought rescuer. I have a type of arthritis. That's why I knew I wouldn't be a guide forever. And later on, I put together, while the rescuer part doesn't really solve the physical issue, So I need to do something that I could sit on my butt more often.
1: (laughs) That's a pilot. Why don't I look at being (laughs) a pilot?
2: And so a few years later, you know, four or five years later, I had that moment and started to think more
1: from... Inside. That is awesome. Do you know who the pilot was by chance?
2: I've tried to look it up and I have not been able to track it down. I've tried to contact the police department. Is uh, Las Vegas Police Las Department. Vegas
1: PD, yeah, so they're a customer of ours. They fly our products. They have an H-145. Yeah, they yeah. d-
2: transitioned to, yeah. to, to Airbus. I would love to so continue the, that research because yeah, I've tried to reach out to the Las Vegas people.
1: people, let us know so you can... Uh, I would
2: love to. I can tell you, I can give you the date. I know all the information, and I what would love to What was the date? Just tell us, be because this. someone
1: listening is going to know. Do you know? remember yeah, the date? Yeah,
2: I am almost positive it was October 23rd, 2010.
1: October 23rd, 2010. So anybody with a Las Within Vegas a PD days. flying a 500, rescuing a couple of climbers out of Red Rock Canyon area. Yeah. Even
2: broadened it a little, late October 2010. Yeah. It was in the Juniper Canyon region of Red yeah. Rock.
1: Yeah. So, send me an email or a text or Jessica directly. M- I would mine. love to know. Yeah. That, I, was, that was the day. I predict someone's going to know. It's stunning how small an industry this is. So, someone's going to go back in their logbook and they're going to look and say, oh, yeah, I was flying a 500 out there that day. And mm-hmm. oh, my gosh, that was her.
2: I would absolutely adore to yeah. be in touch with that Yeah. With and that's, that's a great
1: story. I mean, do you still have contact with the, your friend at the time? Or your partner? Yeah. yeah
2: as it turns out he didn't break his back. Everything was okay. had a sprained wrist and... Uh, you know, cut on his finger, he, he got away so lucky with that accident. But, yep, we are still in touch, and, and he, was, he was fine. Everything worked out well.
1: Well, it was fortunate. So, again, we go back to risk management. Mm-hmm. You were prepared. You had the proper equipment. Something unexpected happened, which can happen in aviation. Yep. Because you had prepared, then that made the severity of the event mm-hmm. less, mm-hmm. and then you were able to ultimately uh, save the person. So no matter what you do in aviation, whether you're a technician, a pilot, you know, an avionics tech, whatever it is that we do, we try to stack the deck in our favor because you never know when the deck's going to fall to the floor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we want everything in our favor. When you were speaking, you made me think I had the privilege. So this would have been the year 2000, maybe 2001. You may remember there was a pretty famous helicopter rescue in the Himalayas Mm -hmm. off of Mount Everest. The person rescued was Dr. Beck Weathers. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Weathers was a pathologist or is, I believe to this day, a pathologist in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so his story was pretty famous. I believe they wrote a book about it and maybe even a movie called Into Thin Air. You bet. Pretty famous event. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Weathers was essentially lost for dead on Everest. And through, you know, just incredible determination. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, we talk about unusual. His story was unusual, but it was through unbelievable tenacity. He made his way back down to, I don't know if his base camp or near base camp, I can't recall, but he was rescued by the Nepalese army. And the Nepalese army was flying an AS 350B2. Not a B-3. We didn't have B-3s at that time because mm-hmm. this rescue would have happened in...
2: 1996, I think was. I was, was. going to say
1: 96, 97. Yeah. So the pilot of that aircraft was Colonel Medan. Colonel Medan flew up the hill, picked up Beck Weathers, flew him down to the hospital. And that was the only interaction. So the only time Medan had met Weathers was in the helicopter flying down the hill. And I believe they were the only two persons on the aircraft because of the DA. So Medan lands at the hospital in you know, Kathmandu or whatever hospital he landed at. And that was the last time he saw Dr. Weathers until they met in my office. So we had a safety stand down at Airbus. We were American Eurocopter at the time. And we flew Colonel Medan from Nepal to Dallas, Texas. And then we invited Dr. Beck Weathers to come to my office and neither knew the other was going to be there. And it almost makes me want to cry talking oh, about it. But they met—that's wonderful—for the first time after five years in my office, and uh, it was quite a, yeah, it was it was an emotional, fantastic experience for everyone. It's sometimes easy to forget that we're talking about people's lives, not numbers. We're talking about humans. And so when we look at accident statistics, it's a little bit difficult for me sometimes because like many people that have been in this business for a while, we have friends who have died in helicopters. And I certainly do. You know, the goal is through what I do and what you're sitting here trying to help us promote is aviation safety. You know, when we say that, you know, nine people perished or, you know, 100 people perished, whatever the number is in a given year, a given month, a given quarter, They're not numbers, they're humans. Every one of those persons has a family, they have loved ones. So as we sit back and we make decisions, whether you're in the cockpit or you're in the hangar working on an aircraft or you're the fueler fueling the aircraft or you're the loader loading the aircraft, it doesn't really matter what your participation is in the event. You need to treat it seriously because people's lives do depend upon it. Yeah, I'm not going to go into detail now. It's very emotional for me, but I can still hear this lovely lady call me at 2 a.m. and said, Bruce, I'm scared. Mike didn't come home. And, you know, Mike was dead. My point is we need to treat aviation safety seriously. And without that aircraft for you in Red Rock area that day, who knows what could have happened? You know, certainly for Dr. Weathers, you know, there are many people like him and like you who have been saved. I think HAI does a fantastic job of acknowledging and promoting and, and telling us stories about people. So I hope that someone listens to this podcast and says, hey, I'm the person that, was f- that flew that day.
2: I hope so, too. And I go out there once or twice a year anyway to continue to climb, and it'd be easy to to meet them. Absolutely. they're still around.
1: So, so flying uh, Alaska. So you were doing a lot of tours. Out to remote areas, glaciers, glaciers. Tell, us, tell us about that.
2: It was Glacier Tours from Juneau. I was based in Juneau and our glacier was about a 0.2 or so away, 10, 15 minute flight. Is and that we would We were on the Herbert. Herbert, okay. Yeah, next one over to the north. Okay. We'd take them on a slightly extended version on the way out there to show off some of the beautiful scenery. And then do the glacier landings. The flight back was just a few minutes shorter because all the grandeur happened on the early part of the flight. And then we would land on the glacier and shut down, walk around with the customers and expose them to the wonderful world of Southeast Alaska glaciers, which is unbelievable. Some people have never seen snow before and it's hard for them to fathom the geological and time scale of a glacier. Being able to expose people to that. Was really magical. And that's one thing that I feel tours will always be able to facilitate for people, and why I will be an advocate for the tour industry. Handicapped folks, we hit, we were one of the only companies that offered a, an ADA option. So people could come into a, a, from their wheelchair, go out to the ramp, get into a lift, be lifted into the helicopter. And we, for that reason, that's had. That's wonderful. Yeah. So many people that were handicapped would never be able to fly to an Alaska glacier. They often didn't get out of the helicopter on the other side, right? But to be able to to see the grandeur of a place like that. And I feel like the tour industry has that capability and really exercises that capability well. And I felt very privileged to be able to fly that amazing helicopter in such an incredible place.
1: Yeah. How many people hike to that glacier? None. None. (laughs) None. I mean, maybe not none. There's probably a Jessica (laughs) out there right now hiking (laughs) to that glacier. but Not often. Not often. So, yes, you know, that's certainly a case, and this happens all across the world where helicopters, you know, the helicopter flight, and forgive me for all the helicopter tour pilots, the the helicopter flight is secondary for many people. The primary purpose of the flight, the reason they're flying in a helicopter is simply to get to the thing they want to see. Right. Whether it's a, a waterfall in Hawaii or a glacier in Alaska, it's a mode of transportation. Now we as aviators love that mode of transportation but for so many people it simply enables them to experience something they could never ever experience otherwise
2: yeah and the only way to get to a place you can't land on a glacier in alaska in a plane unless it's covered in snow right. which is it's okay but it's a different experience or remote places in in hawaii or any number of regions of the world the only way to mm-hmm. access those places and it's family friendly i had grandparents Two, three generations sometimes of people in my helicopter, same family. What other activity can you imagine that can span three generations generations, and bring people together in that way? And a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. They're paying however many hundreds of dollars a seat for that experience. That's not an everyday thing for people. What an incredible, incredible opportunity.
1: In witnessing people get off the aircraft, I've never seen anyone other than all smiles. It's truly a once-in-a-lifetime experience.
2: It's a lot of money. People get stopped by so many things right. and they're scared of helicopters or whatever. Just
1: do it. Right. It's unbelievable. Absolutely. Well, I had the privilege to to ride up onto a couple of glaciers. And what struck me was, and again, it shows my ignorance, I did not realize that really you've got the Juno Ice Field, at least as told me, the Juno Ice Field comes down and then the individual glaciers actually are the smaller, they're the smaller component that comes off the ice field Into the fjords.
2: Yeah, exactly. The Juneau Ice Field is a giant lake of ice. It sits above and behind what we see of as the glaciers. And the glaciers are like small streams flowing out of that lake and down eventually towards the ocean. The Juneau Ice Field is about the size of Rhode Island. It's huge. Right. And that pressure, constant pressure of snow and ice over the winter, it forces the ice flowing downhill eventually Mm -hmm. towards the ocean, a few thousand feet of elevation gain in there somewhere. Right. And it takes a couple hundred
1: years to make the trip. Wow. But that's how it works. I found it fascinating. On one glacier, and I can't tell you the glaciers that we were on, but anyway, on one glacier, the surface had a different appearance than the next glacier. In Mm -hmm. other words, I just thought a glacier was going to be like standing on an ice cube, Mm -hmm. but far, far, far from it. And each one, or at least the two that I was on, were different. Each one was different.
2: They all have different features and they're changing constantly because they're moving downhill about a foot a day. And throughout the season, even our landing spots would change. There are places that I learned to like and that were, I knew were flat and had the right kind of features for my group. And, and over the season, they wouldn't be flat anymore and I couldn't land there. So, we hmm. had to constantly be adapting. And I would change my landing spot for group appropriateness as well. But there were places that I landed at the beginning of the season that weren't flat anymore because it was always moving and changing. (laughs) That doesn't
1: happen often in a helicopter pilot's career. (laughs) Right. That is awesome. So as you sit here today, what lessons have you learned that you believe may not be obvious to a young person who's interested in entering aviation or an older person? You know, whether you're 18, I started when I was very young. You know, that, that was a luxury in a way because, you know, when I was 17, 18 years old, I didn't have any expenses. I mean, really, I had an insurance payment on my car. And, you know, if I wanted to go on a date, but, you know, for me to learn to fly a helicopter was while expensive and it did take all of my income, it didn't put me into a financial bind. But as a person who might be in their 30s or 40s or 50s that want to learn to fly a helicopter, that's a little bit different. What message would you give people that are looking at becoming a pilot or or entering aviation? Whether you're a pilot, a technician, it doesn't matter. What advice would you give or what lessons have you learned?
2: There are barriers to this industry that are either fabricated, something you make up, or that are very real. And that's a blurry line for a lot of folks. And if you want to enter into aviation, regardless of what that is, pilot, could be crew, could be a designer, could be ATC, doesn't matter. And there are barriers that you have identified or that come to your mind. Money is an obvious one. Age is another one. We've touched on those things any number of of excuses, which is really what they are. Examine those and start reaching out to people. Start sharing what you want. Reaching out to people in your life, reaching out to other aviators or other people in the industry who are doing what you want to do, and let them help you. Aviation is such a friendly industry. I have not run into a single person ever. in now, since I started researching helicopters, it's been eight years, nine years, and not a single person has said, no, I'm not willing to help. No, this sucks. You shouldn't do it. (laughs) Not one. Once you start using your voice and sharing that goal that you have or idea that you have, get down to the facts of what it really takes and start flexing those resources. Who of your friends and family group, who in your budding network of aviation are willing to help you and let them help you? It's critical that relationships piece, the networking piece. I'm a huge proponent of being goal-oriented, having a vision. My company is V3 Initiative. The Vs are vision, vulnerability, and voice. Have a vision, have a goal-oriented path, what you want. Vulnerability, be willing to stick your neck out there, put your butt on the line to go get it. You're going to have some risks. It's going to be scary. There are going to be components that are uncertain. You're going to feel like you can't or you shouldn't. And then voice. Voice using your voice to share with your community and get that out into the world. If it stays with yourself, nothing's going to ever happen. You have to get it out into the world. So utilizing those values and those skills, that would be my, my advice. Start awesome. sharing, get it out there.
1: I love the name of the company. That's fantastic. And I think that that is a, a good mantra for all of us, mm-hmm. uh, especially the vulnerability. I think that uh, from a leadership perspective, I think a little vulnerability can show a lot of humility or humanity. And you know what? If you show that you're vulnerable and you're not perfect and you make mistakes, I think you can garner the support of those that you work with or around and your successes are going to be magnified exponentially. They will. Being vulnerable is a difficult thing to do. To admit that you're not all that in a bag of chips, right? To admit that you have foibles and you're capable of making errors and sometimes pretty large errors. So that's excellent advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't be afraid to be vulnerable.
2: I had to become a different person to be a pilot. I had to become a different person I, when I was accomplishing some rock climbing objectives and from my past. To accomplish those goals, I needed the moniker, Vision Vulnerability Voice, and I, I needed to become somebody different. And I think people are afraid of that change we're naturally resistant to change and there's nothing wrong with that if your goals aren't big enough to scare you and i mean scare you they're not big enough we need to be more open to that change if you're not embarrassed about who you were a year ago then you're not bettering yourself enough i think people are more capable than they know themselves to be
1: yeah change is the constant in life Mm -hmm. and i do believe if you will ask your friends if you say listen My goal is to do X, Y, and Z. And you think it may be a goal unachievable, Mm -hmm. but your friends say, no, go for it. That's doable. They probably know you better than you think they know you. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, when someone is encouraging you to attempt the goal, trust them.
2: Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's where the sharing piece comes right back to that. If you're not telling people about your goals, how can they support you? How can they encourage you? Right, How can you lean on them and allow them to be a part of your process? Then you're building those relationships. It's all about relationships. Comes full circle.
1: And be vulnerable enough. You're going to have days when you question yourself, your, you know, you know <laughs> is this a crazy dream or is this, you know, a, a reasonable, obtainable dream? But no one gets anywhere without taking a chance. Never be afraid to take a chance. So, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Jessica. I'm certain that our uh, listeners have enjoyed every word. I certainly have. I think we've reached our clearance limit. Mm -hmm. So, until next time, resume own navigation. Thanks, Bruce. The information provided during this podcast, Push to Talk with Bruce Webb, is made available for general information and educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed do not necessarily represent those of Airbus Helicopters, Inc., or its affiliates.